Thanks for joining us for I Live This, Transforming Mental Health Through Personal Connection, a podcast exploring the ways that people draw on their life experiences to support others, innovate, and advocate for change. I'm Donna Mosh, President and CEO of the Massachusetts Association for Mental Health. I Live This is a co-production of both MAMH and Kiva Centers. There's power in our experiences. They color our lives and how we interact with others. It's our hope that through these conversations, we can elevate individual voices and provide insight on the value of shared moments. We think you'll find that each of our experiences can drive change and foster connection, ultimately transforming the way we look at mental health. Stay with us for today's conversation on homelessness, race, and the criminal legal system with community activist Vesper Moore, the Chief Operating Officer of the Kiva Centers, and restorative justice practitioner George Halfkenny, co-founder of Thrive Communities. And don't forget to stick around after the interview for details on where to get related resources and more information. Hey, George. Thank you for joining me for the I Live This podcast. It's good to be here. Great, great. It's, it's it's wonderful to have you. You know, I've known you for for a few years. We've we've worked together on a variety of projects, and it's really great to just kind of sit down, talk about your life experience, talk about all of these things, right? When we're considering mental health and mental health in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, so I guess just as a way to start, what really brought you to the mental health peer support movement, peer support community? I feel like I was doing peer support before it like had a name. It was just sort of like finding finding some purpose in the madness that was my life and my lived experience. And so I would if I wasn't working someplace, because I don't I didn't go to school for it or, or like anything like that, you know. Um it was just a, a natural thing for me to to like wanna help other people and you know, this was something I had more knowledge in than anything else. I can really relate to that. Like that resonates in the way of like, I think for me in my home growing up, peer support happened around the kitchen table with my mom, my grandmother, my, my siblings, when we would share a meal, when we would talk together, right? We would support each other. It would happen in the, in the community center, um, in, in, in my neighborhood, you know, it would, it would happen in a lot of different spaces. And I didn't have a name for it, I think, till later on. So when did you really realize that, like, what you wanted to do was peer support related? Why not, like, I don't know, anything specific to, like, being a nurse or a social worker or working in these other spaces? Why peer support? Well, for me, it was sort of the the opportunity again to support other people, but to be able to do it in like a variety of roles. Like I didn't want to just be, you know, the substance use guy or the, you know, reentry guy. You know, I wanted to be able to sort of coexist in all of these spaces because I there's so much overlap in the work. And so it really allowed for me to do that. And that was something that I couldn't get anywhere else. I, I feel like peer support is, is unique in that way, where it's like, 
authentic connection. Let's be real. Let's sit down for a minute. Let's talk about this, right? And that 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 authenticity is 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 so important, I think, in terms of human connection. Because like at the center of a lot of mental health, when we talk about the struggle, it's a it's really disconnection that that that, that drives that. So let's let's talk a little bit about your life experiences and really taking a moment and looking back and how did you get to a place t- today where where you're really so passionate for supporting other people, working with others, working in the community, helping others, you know, um, s- supporting others. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess originally I started doing like I think I started doing restorative justice circles as a part of an effort with the Children's Defense Fund uh, to dismantle the school to prison pipeline. This was in like 2011 or something like that. And part of that uh, effort, it was like a four-pronged approach, but my responsibility was to was, was community engagement to let people know about the pipeline and you know how it worked. And uh, we showed this film called The House I Lived In, um, which is about the history of mass incarceration and had, you know, circles of really diverse groups of folks, um, but all stakeholders, quote unquote, get together and really, you know, talk about it. And it was then that I was like, oh, this is it. Like, this is the stuff that really, you know, because the next thing you know, like we're helping to create the restorative justice bill and it, it just, it got me to, I, I got the, the passion, the purpose in that moment. And, and so, um, but there was no place for me though, quote unquote, uh, professionally anyway. And it was weird, like I would volunteer all the time and I'd be at events and, and you know, activism and, you know, people would come up and they would, um, this is probably the greatest uh, compliment, I guess I could get is that they would be like, you know, we need to create positions for people like Mr. Afghani over there who really had everything to do with this and da 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 da. And I'd get claps and, you know, pass on the back, but there was no space. And so, you know, I worked a bunch of other jobs, moved furniture, sold cars, uh, waiter, like I tried everything, did everything, you know. And, but my, my, Actually, sort of my background music was always like this sort of work where I could have connection with people and help resolve conflict. My first professional break didn't come until I started working with the Recovery Support Center, uh, Step Rocks in Roxbury. And still did the sort of activism stuff in between. Um, yeah, that's what connecting me with the, with sort of the work. Like, I mean, I come from the, the trap house, you know what I mean? Like I, I grew up in a trap house, you know, um, pimps and prostitutes and people trying to shut the door so I won't see them tying off before they shoot up. Um, you know, as a little kid, man, trying to navigate all of that was <laughs> challenging to say the least, but, the environment was just so toxic and horrifying. I mean, people were still gunshots, still police raids. That's where I come from, man. And like, it was just the house of horrors. It was ridiculous. 
Um, and I, you know, and I, I ended up dealing with some abuse in that house. And I was, uh, I was a young kid, man. I was like eight. I tell the story uh, thinking back that I thought that uh, when I went to school the next day, the teacher would know that something was wrong and would, you know, approach me, bring me to the side and we, you know, we could talk about it and figure this shit out. And she didn't. She was like the only black teacher um, in my school at the time. You know what I mean? This is in the 70s and shit. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, wow, wow. Yeah, man. And so, you know, I remember, man, like uh, I threw a chair in, in that class. And when I did that, I got some attention and I went to the suspension office or, you know, whatever, timeout room. Ironically, for throwing that chair, my mom, you know, was called by the school and they're like, he has some, he needs to see somebody. We don't know why, but he needs to see a professional. And back then, you had to pay out of pocket for that unless you petitioned the state to help. And so she filed what was called a chins petition. And that allowed the court to then make me their responsibility and I could go to see one of their state sanctioned doctors. So part of that, it's a civil process, but you have to go to court. And I went to court with my mother. And the first thing that happened was I was assigned this probation officer. He was a big white man. And he had his big, big beard belly and his real, real red nose. I'll never forget him, right? Because he brought me downstairs and go test the court and put me in the jail cell and walked away. I was eight years old. So, wow. you know, when you start to to hear about like the, the sort of the horror show, that was not the worst part of my day, ironically. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like looking back, um, really that wasn't the worst part of my day, man. And and you know, starting from there, I, I ended up getting taken from my mother and boarding schools and foster homes. So from age to 11 to 13, I was at this school for boys, which was a house, it was crazy. Those kids were just kids teaching kids how to, you know, survive. And it was, it was like in the movies. Like like boarding schools and shit. Like it was like that, man. It was it was so crazy. And then you know there was some abuse going on over there. Now with me, go from now. I'm 13. I come back to my mother's house after going to this boarding school for two and a half years in the project. Wow. So now all the kids are like, that's the kid that was in jail. He was in, because that was, that was killing kids. You know, they had DYS kids there and DSS kids there. I was a DSS kid, but there was no distinction over there. What's really striking about your story and what you just shared is like, you started with school isolation, then you went into a holding cell, right? Then it was like this, this, this boarding school, right? Esque type place far away from, from where you live and like, all of these kids trying to survive. So, so, so you're learning about all these things. And um, 
where do you go next? And also, how did you find out about a restorative justice approach? And why do you think restorative justice is important when we talk about mental health and substance use recovery, right? It's, it's funny, it, it'll come full circle, if you will. But um, so I'm 13, I'm back at my mother's house and it's still bad. So there was an opportunity to go to this halfway house in Cambridge, DYS kids, DSS kids, but they would give me a job and da 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 da. So I got a job at the MDC pools, the, you know, the outdoor pools. I was one of the ballets uh, over there. Thank you very much. Got to spend all summer at the pool. Um, but that was my first job and Cambridge really uh, opened my eyes to a lot of different things that I didn't experience in Roxbury um, in the projects and so including drugs. And so, um, you know, Cambridge is a wealthy, not wealthy, but their medium income is definitely higher than ours was in the projects, right? So drugs in Cambridge was plentiful and everybody had them and da 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 because those kids all had money, you know what I'm saying? And so I did it. And so I ended up having to find my way through, you know, hustling and shit like that. You know, I couldn't, I didn't have anybody giving me money or any kind of job, you know what I'm saying? I was just a kid. And so, you know, one of my, I was in a foster home out here. After I left the halfway house, I went to a foster home and I met this girl who was going on her freshman year at Spelman College. And she was with her best friend who was going on her freshman year at Syracuse. And me and my best friend were selling weed. And so we hung out for the whole summer. And at the end of that summer, they went to school and my best friend got murdered. Like mm. right after they left, like two weeks after they left, like they had to turn right back around and come back because you know, and um, he was like the only person I had. I met him at the pool. He's the one who introduced me to my foster parent. You know what I'm saying? The whole deal. And uh, wow. you know, when I lost him, man, I lost my mind. And my my foster brother was his best friend before I came in the picture. <laughs> So they grew up, you know, they've been friends. So we were in a house of hurt, you know, and they, they were smoking crack. It just came out in 1984. It literally just touched down. It was brand new. No one had ever done it before. There was no stigmas involved with cocaine back then because cocaine was, if you was doing cocaine, you had money. You were, you were big shit. You know, it was, it was literally night and day as far as the difference between cocaine and crack. <laughs> and that goes yeah. from everything to sentencing guidelines to everything else. Anyway, but that's when I was introduced to it by my older foster brothers. I was 14, working at the pool. They weren't working. They were smoking crack. So I, I was only working. I come in every Thursday with 300 bucks in my pocket. They're like, you don't need money for nothing. You don't got no bills. It was like an endless cycle of that until I got in trouble. And then I went to jail. And then I got out and I'm like, I'm going to do it better this time. Not different, but better. Because I thought that's all I had, that those were the only options I had. So I did that for the next 20 years in and out of jail. You know, I had kids. I missed out on their lives. You know, I hurt a lot of people along the way, caused a lot of harm in my community with people who cared about me and trusted me. And every, and it was weird. Like, 
every time I broke the trust, I would get deeper into the game because I felt like I'm so far gone now. I just did that thing that I said I'd never do. And um, that's what addiction was for me, man. And, and I struggled for many, many, many years. The struggle is real. The struggle is today. The struggle is tomorrow. You know what I mean? Um, the only thing I have is this moment right here, you know? And so my job is just to manage this one moment the best I can. I call it adjusting my karma, paying back my debts. Mm. Paying back so, your debts. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a great segue into restorative justice, man. Um, like that same girl, after she left Syracuse, she went to Harvard. After she went to Harvard, she came back to Cambridge and started a mediation program. But she had been trained in restorative practices. Uh, there was another woman, Janet Connors, who um, her son was killed here in Dorchester. And she went to see some killers in jail. Wow. Okay. And had a process with them and was like the only way, you know, because they were remorseful. They were kids. They were all kids, you know, when it happened. You know, she said, the only way uh, you make any sense out of, out of my boy's life is if you do the right thing with yours at this point. You know, I'll support you. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll help you, you know. And they got clothes. They made a movie about it. <laughs> so she trained me. Um, she works at Suffolk, like the Suffolk University has a school of restorative practices or something like that. She works over there now. Um, so I got trained as part of that effort to dismantle the school to prison pipeline because we were going to use circles to unpack the movie and talk about these bigger picture issues. And they wanted me to have a good process to do that with. And Sandra, the woman, was sharp enough to say, this is perfect because we're talking about harm. We're talking about, you know, repairing harm. So it's so much bigger, you know, especially when you talk about uh, someone who cycled in and out of prison. I mean, when you go to jail, people, people, somebody got hurt. Somebody got hurt some kind of way, you know what I mean? And you have to uh, uh, remember that, man. Yeah, it's, there have been times where, where you've described to me like, different situations that people have been in where a restorative justice approach was exactly what was needed and i've always appreciated that that insight because it's like you know one person might interpret a situation in one way and not see the full picture right yeah. another person's interpreting it another way and doesn't see the full picture and then how do we like convene people to talk about it and engage in restorative practice and restorative practice is so important to the concepts of recovery and the concepts of healing and trauma healing and all of these things that we talk about because really it's often we're missing the context the background of a person's life you know we might be so focused on one track on survival on living in this way on doing things in this way right that we don't engage in those conversations how how could people engage in more conversations about restorative justice I think that when people find themselves in a in a conversation that has to do with anything punitive or having to do with retribution or you know 
anything like that, I think that's a good segue into uh, a conversation about, you know, an alternative that has a deep history and, and a long success rate <laughs> and how it, it's been able to, you know, hold communities, hold, you know, I mean, if you think about first people using it for everything, if they were going to war, yeah, the circle. If there was going to be a marriage, they were in a circle. Everything, you know what I mean? And everybody's voice was equal. Everybody got to say something. Everybody counted, you know? And they came to these things by consensus. I mean, you know, when you think about it's so simple, but we lose our way, I feel like, often in those steps. I don't know. I always find it difficult to explain anything that has to do with social justice because I really do feel like there's some kind of magic or something that happens in that process. You know, there's a shift and like we get and understand each other now way differently than we did before. And you don't see it happening. You don't see it coming. It's just you just sort of notice it. And, and just, you know, like I said, it being a really effective tool and getting sort of a big message out because I felt like that that work, that first campaign that we did, I felt like was was telling. If that's the sort of thing that will help me to do that, then you know, this was a good fit. They were a good fit for each other. RJ, I felt like in sort of this pair work for the same reasons. I, I mean, I agree. I think peer support groups are healing circles more often than not. And, you know, my my people, um, the Taino in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, what's called that now, you know, indigenous people of there, we would have healing circles in bojios, which are houses, right? And we would normally have restorative practice whenever something violent has happened, whenever something else has been done by someone, you know, like really like sitting down and talking about it. And we don't always engage in those conversations. I think a lot of people are, um, are, are unwilling in a lot of ways, but I think for myself, when thinking about Brown and black mental health and healing and what that looks like, right. It's as we were talking about earlier, it happens in the kitchen table. It happens in the community. It happens everywhere. And it's, it's so important, uh, bringing it back to restorative justice. I'm wondering if, if you want to talk one, a little bit about the work at Mass and Cass you've been doing over the years and why you do it. And I also want to know if you have like any final messages that you want everyone to, to hear when they listen to this episode. Uh, I'm really uh, happy uh, to be a part of, of some work done on, on Mass and Cass. When I was released from jail, that's where they dropped me off at at 112 at the shelter right there. And they were like, you're on probation. They didn't say this, but the message was, you're on probation, don't do any drugs or get in any trouble. <laughs> and it was clear, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys gotta be kidding me, right? And so um, it was hard. It was really challenging to get out of there because this was before all the supports, quote unquote, that I focused on that space now that they just weren't there then. It was it was just starting out pretty much. It was growing into itself um, when I was there. So interviews with folks down there now to sort of find out, uh, well, my hope is to see if there's any sort of common threads that sort of go through. We're trying to 
find out where, where further needs are. There are a lot of resources down there right now, but there are some spaces, uh, there are some gaps. And I feel like, you know, if we're creative, we could we could exist in those gaps and sort of help folks out from, from there. Yeah. And there's also this change, right, from from this uh, what's often referred to as methadone mile, right, to miracle mile. And I know that you had done that that work uh, with the Andy Warhol Foundation, and I know that with Kiva centers, we've been right. Yeah, Kiva's yeah. surveys. I mean, the um, and the Andy Warhol Foundation, because since then, that project has sort of grown, and we're gonna actually refurbish the rear of the shelter where they had a temporary tent before. The permanent building is up at the engagement center where people can go. This refurbishment and redoing of the back face over there is um, will hopefully be FUBU. It'll be, it'll be us doing it, contributing to it. So the See You in the Future project that I'm involved with sort of tries to bridge that gap between art and uh sort of social justice stuff and we've been doing like art workshops down there and um just sort of again trying to exist in those spaces so we have a pretty eclectic team of people um from all different kinds of spaces but we make a good collective <laughs> um so yeah the, the, that stuff is great but the but the need is still there the sort of gap between one of the spaces, if you will, I don't feel like there's enough of a connection with mental health in the unhoused mm. the person dealing with substance use issues. They're sort of siloed off and people talk about a continuum of care and, you know, we all have to network so we can make sure that there's, you know, there's still not enough, in my opinion, being done in that space. And I yeah. think people are getting lumped in to categories that they don't need to be in necessarily. You know, and once you lump them into that category, then that's who they are, man. They gotta they gotta want to want it. We could be out here, but they gotta want it. <laughs> but you lumped them into this category and they're not getting their stuff dealt with, you know? And that's how it was for me, like, I had all this childhood trauma, all this early adulthood trauma that never got dealt with. I was in the adult prison system when I was 18, 19 years old, man. And, you know, it, you know, that was, that was serious. You had to grow up fast in there, you know? And so yeah, I think part of the reason why my cycle, that, that I went in such a, uh, a cycle over and over like that was because I wasn't doing anything really to address the other piece, the mental health piece. And it wasn't until I did that I started to see some kind of results. I guess we could tie this in with, with a final inspirational message, but like if, if there was something that you wish your neighborhood had growing up or, or, or you know, your, your area had growing up, you know, what do you think it is that like can offer people those resources that can really help them in the moment when they're struggling, support them when they're struggling, right? If there was a vision 
for for the future of your community and in your neighborhood what would that future look like it's funny because that project's called see you in the future right yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean there would there would there would be genuine you know equality um i'd be able to see it in the the police i'd be able to see it in the people who work in the banks and who you know I'd be able to see that equity, that sort of, because I feel like without that, we're sort of still siloed off, you know, whether it's haves and haves nots, whites and blacks, whatever it is, we have a a reason to say we're not, we're not them or we're not the same. You can't do that if there's equity (laughs) because you are the same. We're equal. Yeah. It's right in the name. And so, you know, when I, I would want that community for my children, you know what I mean? Um, to be able to have a place like that, be their community where people who were struggling with stigmas and, you know, treated as if they were second rate somehow because they were dealing with whatever they were dealing with. I want them to be treated like everybody else, equity. (laughs) Where we start caring about each other more, checking up on each other more, trying kindness first instead of fear. Mm, Trying kindness first instead of fear. Thank you for joining us, George, for being on this episode, for sharing your experience. It's so valuable and like, and speaking for your community and with your community and being in that space. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for I Live This, Transforming Mental Health Through Personal Connection, a podcast from the Massachusetts Association for Mental Health and Kiva Centers. You can find more information about the podcast and past episodes at mmh.org. If you have questions or comments, or would like to share your experience, email us at info at mamh.org or find us on social media. Next time on I Live This, a conversation about the sexual, reproductive, and mental health of LGBTQ plus people and gender minorities. We'll be joined by guest interviewer, Anderson Lumberto Wilson, and practicing therapist and advocate, Dr. Elizabeth Boski. We do hope you'll join us.